This is quite a well-known picture, um, comparing and contrasting the inauguration ceremony for President Obama in 2009 and the one for Donald Trump in 2017, which has kind of done the rounds in the news a fair bit. So um, just turn to your neighbour and without causing a great political controversy right now, <laughs> just offer your opinion as to which of the two inauguration ceremonies you think did have in factual accuracy, which one really did have the highest attendance. Okay? So now I know I'm setting you up a little bit, but offer an opinion and say why you think you have that opinion. Okay? So I'll give you two minutes on that. Just find someone and say, I think it's probably Obama or I think it was probably Donald Trump. Okay? So I'll just now in a sense I've been kind of really naughty with you because the picture is pretty compelling evidence uh, after all. It is something that has been quite controversial. Um, lots and lots of different claims and counterclaims have been made by various different people. So, some sound in here. So, just give me a quick show of hands. We'll do a quick straw poll. So how many think we're probably more at Obama's uh, inauguration? Okay, so a few. And how many thought probably Trump and that they doctored it or it wasn't quite right? So there's one or two. Okay, so some think it might have been Trump, but it was taken at an unfair point in the time. Uh, but too, too early. Too early, yeah. And then others have thought, well, no, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely uh, Obama. There's no question. You can see that the crowd's much, much bigger. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to offer you some supporting information from somewhere else. Okay, so the Washington, D.C. Metro... Uh, they obviously have a system that issues tickets. And uh, on the day of the Obama inauguration, it was their busiest day in their history ever. And they sold 1.1 million tickets in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, and that's kind of you know, their factual statement from all their machines. Um, now, the total trips on the day of the Trump inauguration for the same period of time in the day of the inauguration was 570,557. So you can see it's about half. Um, now, again, even with this, people have gone, well, no, no, that's just been doctors, you know, there's some people doing spin within the metro system and so on, but actually they've got no particular apps to grind, they just publish the figures because they like to do that sometimes. Um, so that's another angle that you can look at. Now, I'm going to present you, so you've seen a kind of a case for and against, perhaps, uh, or you've talked about that with your, with your friends. I'm going to just show you a little video of the then press secretary, Sean Spicer, giving an account of why it was actually like a, a false picture, okay? So, um, uh, Craig, do you mind just hitting the lights again? Just the bottom two switches, just so we can see it, and that'd be great. So have a listen to what he's got to say. Photographs of the inaugural proceedings were intentionally framed in a way, in one particular tweet, to minimize the enormous support that had gathered on the National Mall. This was the first time in our nation's history that floor coverings have been used to protect the grass in the mall. That had the effect of highlighting any areas where people were not standing, while in years past, the grass eliminated this visual. This was also the first time that fencing and magnetometers went as far back on the wall, preventing hundreds of thousands of people from being able to access the mall as quickly as they had in inaugurations past. Inaccurate numbers involving crowd size were also tweeted. No one had numbers because the National Park Service 
which controls the National Mall, does not put any out. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period, both in person and around the globe. Even the New York Times printed a, photo a photograph showing the, that a, a misrepresentation of the crowd in the original tweet in their paper would show the full extent of the support, depth, and crowd and intensity that existed. These attempts to lessen the enthusiasm of the inauguration are shameful and wrong. There you have it. Ooh, a bit loud. Shameful and wrong, in the words of Sean Spicer. And we just hit the lights back on. Thanks ever so much. Why am I showing you uh, that? Uh, the reason I want to show you that is I want to explore uh, something from uh, King David, the life of King David. So if you've got a Bible, uh, would you turn with me to um, 2 Samuel chapter 11? And the link from that video to where we're going to tonight is that there is no doubt that Sean Spicer on camera says some untruths. There's just no doubt about it. Categorically, it was not the most well-attended inauguration in person in history. Uh, there's just no doubt about that. Now, you can go online and you can find all sorts of raging controversies for and against, but I think it's really clear that actually Obama wins it. He just does, okay? Now, Sean Spicer tries to make a case for that not being true, um, and in fact, that particular uh, news briefing uh, led or gave rise to the phrase alternative facts. So somebody said in the press uh, briefing said, well, you know, uh, what about this, this photograph? And he said, well, I'm going to present you with some alternative facts. So we live in a culture that seems to be very happy with fluidity around what's true and what isn't. What I want to draw your attention to in the Bible is that the Bible is painstakingly, searing, searingly honest about the failings of its leaders sometimes. It's very contrasting to our culture. And I just want to open with that statement and say that in, one Samuel, uh, in, sorry, in 2 Samuel 11, we have a searing account of a slip down into sin, getting worse and worse and worse and worse in the nation's leader, uh, in the person of King David. And we're going to unpack that and explore that a little bit this evening. But the reason I've shown you that media clip is I want to highlight the difference between how people will try and cover things up versus how honest and brutally honest the Bible can be sometimes. You read this chapter and you're like, you're just wincing all the way at how straight it is and how honest it is and how yeah. uh, truthful it is in the account of an unfolding of some sin. And, uh, you know, people say that, you know, Christianity, well, one of the charges against the Christian faith is, oh, you know, you, you guys use Jesus as a corruption, you know, you have these supports and you, you, you find it hard to get by with, uh, without all the help you get from your so-called God. Well... I think this chapter completely debunks that because it's absolutely straight down the line and it hurts to read because it's so detailed and, and, and straight. So that's the starting point that I want to open with. Um, would somebody be very kind enough to read us the chapter out loud? Has there somebody got it there in their, in their Bible? Uh, somebody willing to do that? Uh, just the whole chapter, uh, yeah. 2 Samuel. Is that all right, Kevin? Would you mind just doing that on the, uh, on the mic for us? Okay. Yeah, of course, yeah. 2 Samuel 11. Yes, thanks. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. 
The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent, David, sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, Haven't you just come up from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation he ate and he drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob-Besheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done had displeased the Lord. So what I'm going to do this evening is I'm going to take you through ten points in the sequence of how this unfolds. Uh, and each of the, the steps reveals uh, a, a purposefulness in David um, that is sinful. There's no two ways about it. And we're going to unpack it. And then when we've looked at it in all its gory detail, what we're then going to do is we're going to go through some strategies for how we can respond to temptation and these kinds of difficulties or the, that pull that we sometimes feel to do the wrong thing in our own lives with some practical strategies to help you 
navigate this kind of thing so that you don't fall into these kind of disasters. Okay, so on your notes you'll have, I've put there 10 sins in 1 Samuel 24, and we'll just go through these. So write these down as we go, okay? Uh, and I'll put them up on the screen for you too. So, number one, David was off purpose when being on purpose would have prevented everything. David was off purpose when being on purpose would have prevented everything. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, what I mean by that is that David really should have been out on campaign leading his troops. He should have been out fighting with his army. They were on, or they were in the middle of a, of a military campaign. Uh, they had the ark with them, the soldiers were consecrated, they were out there doing their stuff, and for some reason, David comes back to base camp and he's languishing there. Now, it's arguable, I guess, if whether that you could describe that, that as being a sin, acts as such. But what I want to say is that if we are not on point and right in the centre of God's will for us, I think temptations become a lot, lot uh, harder to resist, a lot, lot more difficult. They have a greater appeal than they otherwise might. Now, so this first point is relatively small by comparison with what then unfolds, but it's definitely worth making that point. If you're not on point and on focus and on, on purpose, you kind of open yourself up to a lot of other stuff. It, you just do, okay? So that's, that's number one. Uh, second thing, uh, David follows up on temptation when presented with it. Uh, now, I want to put it to you that the earliest point in dealing with temptation uh, is nearly always at the very beginning of the temptation. Um, in 2 Corinthians 13.10, it says this, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be, tempt be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Uh, it's a pretty great verse. It says lots of good things. Um, all the temptations we've ever faced are common to everybody. Uh, you sometimes can think that they're unique to you, but they're not. Uh, God is faithful and won't put you in a situation that, that you can't resist. Uh, and when you are in temptation, there is always a way out. And very often the way out is early in the process, early on in the process. Okay. Um, so if I can give you like a mental picture of how this might be, I think it's easier to stop yourself sliding down a hill on a tin tray at the top when you're standing there thinking about it than when you're whizzing down and you're halfway down the slope already going really, really fast. Can you, do you get the difference there? It's a very obvious difference, but if you can prevent that before you get into that momentum, you have a much better chance of, of beating the temptation. Okay. So David should have averted his gaze and gone indoors. But he indulges and keeps on looking, and then he asks somebody to find out about her, and then the person informs him who she is, it's Bathsheba, and then he sends his messengers, and it's little steps, little steps, all the time. And then she's there with him, and these are definite steps along the journey. Uh, and now, using the sliding tin tray analogy, we're, we're really travelling quite fast. Now, I want to open up something from the book of James. James defines temptation as like something being given birth, and then growing, and then turning into sin, and then turning into death. Uh, in James 1, 13 to 15, let me just jump to that a minute, um, and I'll talk you through the graphic that you've got in your notes in just a moment. James 1, 13 to 15 says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire 
and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So let's just imagine in this picture that this is kind of God's plan for the development of your character over time. That as you live your life, you get a bit smarter about doing the right thing because the Holy Spirit's prompting you, you trip up a few times and you realise that wasn't a great idea, so you avoid those mistakes in future, you mature, you get a bit older, you get a bit wiser, all those, you, get, you just get, you, you, you start knowing who you are too, more and more as you get older. And so my assumption, you can call that journey like a posh Christian word, sanctification, if you like, which is stepping closer and closer to Christ-likeness. So that's your kind of baseline, it's not just flat, well, at least I hope it's not flat in your cases. I hope that we're all making progress in the Lord. So that's your baseline. And what happens is um, that through the journey of life, there's no doubt about it, we get presented with opportunities uh, that we consider and turn over in our minds. And that's what James calls an evil desire. Um, and they, I mean, I don't probably need to instruct you on these, but we have a myriad of them all the time. Um, you know, for like not paying our parking or parking on double yellow line all the way through to cheating in work or doing the wrong thing in a relationship or, you know, there's just thousands of them. And they, they live below the surface of our thinking and occasionally they present themselves to us and we think to ourselves, oh, and then we know through the prompting of the Spirit, through our conscience and through the teaching of the Bible and all those things, we think, no, no, that's wrong. I don't, I'm not going to do that. Um, but sometimes, uh, one of those thoughts might be something where we start to consider it more and more. And what happens is, there's a sequence that goes on. That it, the evil desire, if we let it and continue to indulge it, will eventually give birth to a reality. So what starts off in the mental landscape of up here, if we're not disciplined and have self-control, we then can step into, oh, now that's now become, I've made that happen. And that's now out there. It's not just in your head. You've made it happen. Um, and that's when it's a sin. And then, actually, if that's a repeated thing and it carries on and on and on, actually, sin is destructive. Uh, it breaks stuff. It hurts people. Uh, it eventually leads to something dying. Something gets killed off, like a, a ministry or a marriage or a job or a reputation or whatever. Something dies. And in some extreme cases, and in this story, people can die as a result of this path. Now I want to show you something that how temptation works. Now temptation works in this zone uh, here, in this arc. So I think I've shown some of you this graphic before, but I'm just gonna present it to you again. So in, in essence, the temptation that can happen uh, around these evil desires is in this blue arc here. Now it's really clear that the place that you, you can snap that and nip it in the bud is at the beginning of the process because um, if you are trying to handle something that's up here on the left in that little corner that's a lot less large because you've given it lots less space than if you're kind of down here and then all of this kind of surface area has been taken up which is like a, a picture of how it's played out in your mind so what I'm saying is if you're disciplined and uh, you deal with it quickly in your thinking it's much much easier so my suggestion would be, if you're tempted, snap onto it straight away and be on your toes about it and move on. And if you do that more quickly, you'll manage it much better. I think it's much harder to be languishing around that temptation because it grows, becomes bigger and bigger. Okay? 
And then I think, of course, uh, at this point, that, that, where that dotted line is, that's where it steps across from being in your head and into being a reality. And that's a boundary point that you don't really want to be too near. Um, you know, keep the boundary far away from the point where it's going to slip over into reality. And the best way to do that is early on in the process. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's what James is teaching us. So, point number three. David actually commits adultery by sleeping with Bathsheba. Uh, so she's there with him, uh, they sleep together, and uh, it, we don't get told in the passage what Bathsheba thinks of this. Um, just that it happens, and I, I'm guessing she would have been confronted with a pretty difficult choice, uh, be obedient to the king, or uh, be put to death by stoning for adultery, but it's really significant that she doesn't speak. Uh, and there are other situations in the Bible where people maybe do speak up and say, don't do this thing, this is horrible. So she, it's, it's interesting to me, she's not somebody who's kind of, in this account, has piped up and said, I think this is wrong. But what, for whatever reason, she doesn't speak. Now Bathsheba then falls pregnant and she sends word to David that that's what's happened. And it's unquestionably because of David, because when we first see Bathsheba, it says in the text that she'd been cleansing herself from her uncleanness, uh, which is uh, just following her period. So we know that this is definitely David's uh, little baby that's on the way. Now, David knows that he is now in big, big trouble, and the consequences are coming no matter what he does. Okay, so that's, num that's number three. Now, here's where it starts to get uh, kind of... When, I think when you get into a sin problem, if you, have, if you haven't avoided, if you haven't navigated the temptation successfully and you've slipped into sin, your next best thing is to get out of sin as quick as you can and keep that account really short and deal with, it, deal with that quickly. But what David doesn't do is he doesn't do that. He makes it worse and worse and worse. And so what he does is that number four is that he tries to cover his tracks by sending Uriah along. He thinks to himself, right, well, if I send Uriah along then, well, you know, they might sleep together and it will be covered up. And I think he must be kind of putting off that day 20 years down the line or perhaps even five years down the line when that little person pops out and doesn't look like anything like Uriah. I, I don't know how that works, but I think he's thinking, well, it's, he could get away with it. You know, he might just get away with it. It might be that it works. And that's his, think, that's his thought process. Okay. Um, now, it's quite interesting to me uh, when you look at Uriah the Hittite. He was away at the front fighting in David's army. And I think that when Uriah came back to uh, the palace, I think that David had an opportunity there to do the right thing and take the heat and sort it out at that point and offer him an apology and try and clear up the matter. Um, but he doesn't decide to be honest with Uriah. Uh, he asks him some initial questions about the military campaign to make it sound as though, uh, you know, it's just like a normal conversation, and to give a justification for Uriah having returned, because Uriah would have been a much lower level captain. I mean, David was effectively king of Israel, and Uriah would have been one of the captains in his army. So for him to come back from the front, there must have been some sort of a reason for that. Um, but David is kind of, you know, there's a surface reason for, that David's giving to Uriah, and then there's a real reason that David has um, and then he tries, up the, he tries to set the conditions up favourably for Uriah to go home and be with his wife. Uh, and, um, you know, I guess his hope 
we, we are all sitting here in this room thinking, well, that's a pretty, you know, harebrained plan that, yeah, maybe he will go home, maybe he will sleep with her, maybe the baby won't look like David, but it'll look like Uriah, maybe it'll all be fine. That's a really harebrained plan. And I've got to say to you, I think that when we get into these labyrinthine sins and these really difficult situations, I think some of our cool objectivity about the situation goes off and we start becoming a little less objective. In fact, I'd put it to you that sin makes us naive. Sin makes us naive. When you start sinning, you start becoming naive. You start stop seeing things with that cool objectivity that you normally see things with and you start seeing things with a kind of a you perspective, like it's all about where you're at, and you stop seeing the 360 picture, and it reduces your capacity down quite a bit. And I think that that's true with David. I think his judgment is normally highly astute. I mean, we looked last week about the whole episode in the cave and how he wouldn't touch the Lord's anointed and all the rest of it, and he was, he was the dream leader in that situation. And you think, wow, amazing. And then we're in this situation, and he's really making some poor judgment calls. Notice also that David is relying on Bathsheba, uh, covering for him, should he go home. He is kind of hoping that she won't say anything, and that's a big risk for the situation too. But there's this unexpected twist that goes on from the story. Uriah does not go in to see his wife, but he stays at the servant, with the servants at the gate. And then David asks him why he doesn't go home, and uh, he, Uriah, it's really interesting that Uriah gives reasons that should have been David's reasons, but weren't. He gives reasons that are great. They're great reasons. He says things like, well, the Ark and the army are on campaign. Um, I want to stay pure around this whole campaign that we're conducting. Um, It wouldn't have been wrong for Uriah to go home and be with his wife. Not at all. But actually, he's lifting his behavior to a very honorable level to support David. And it's striking that Uriah's motive is way more noble than David's at this point. Uh, And it's, it's interesting. He's not a native Israelite. So we have a Hittite, a foreigner, supportive of Israel, fighting for and with David. In fact, Uriah the Hittite is mentioned as one of uh, David's special warrior uh, troops. There was a group of about 30 guys, and they were exceptional soldiers, like they were kind of your sort of Iron Man type soldiers who would just do anything and do crazy stuff for David. Um, there's, a, there's an account of a guy called Benaiah, I think it's Benaiah, who goes into a into a pit on a snowy day and he kills a lion with his bare hands, apparently. I mean, these, these dudes are kind of, you know, they're serious fighters. And Uriah was one of these 30 people. So he was considered an elite fighter, even though he was low down in rank. So there were, he was part of the 30. So Uriah's contrast is very strong with David in this story. Not a native Israelite, not a king, married but prepared to wait for his wife and on campaign with the soldiers. So that's... That's number four. Um, Number four is he tries to cover the tracks by sending Uriah along in the first instance. When that doesn't work, it gets worse. So David, what David does is he tries to cover his tracks by applying Uriah with drink. It hasn't worked, so uh, he tries to get Uriah drunk, and and Uriah does drink, and they get, I guess, they get drunk together. They eat and drink together, and he'll, you know, David's logic now is well, let's hope that you'll stagger home and. You'll kind of just do the inevitable with your wife. and it's Again, Uriah drunk is still better than David sober. And he sleeps by the main gate again with his master's servant. 
And so all of David's covert attempts to cover up what he has done have failed. I don't know if you've ever, you probably have had this experience, because I certainly have a few times, is when you know that you've done the wrong thing, and you, you get trapped in it. And so you're, you're in this space where you've done the wrong thing, and to unpick it's really hard, because what you have to do is go back and show those people that you did the wrong thing. Like, you, know, you know how that is? When you catch someone out in lying, and they're like, oh, and, 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 and you see that, 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 you know, you see their, their steps that they've taken, and then they're having to see those steps. And that's part of the difficulty of it. And we, but we've got to have the courage to go, well, no, I've done the wrong thing. Okay. Um, now this is where, I mean, it's been pretty bad, but now number six, this is where it gets uh, very insidious, uh, very uh, evil. David plans Uriah's death in battle. He goes to the next level. So not only have we got adultery, we've now got murder on the cards. Uh, David decides he needs to remove Uriah. He needs to, uh, he, his need to cover up gets so great that he develops this concept of murder, but dressed as this sort of botched military campaign uh, or, or tactic that doesn't work out in the field. Um, and so the escalations can keep climbing up. So first, it's trying to cover the real reasons for a pregnancy, and now it's trying to cover a murder as something that's just unfortunate on the battlefield. Can you see the dressing up that's going on around this whole process? Okay. Number seven, and this is particularly horrible, is that David sends the plans for Uriah's death to the battlefront with no, no less than Uriah himself. I mean, that's just, oh dear. That is, it's just awful. What an awful betrayal. Imagine being made to carry your own death warrant to a, to a, into a place. I mean, I just think, wow, that is really low. Sorry? It says something about the nobility It does send something about it. It says a lot about the nobility of Uriah because Uriah didn't think to open it and look. He trusted David completely, and that's an abuse of trust. Let's just open this out a minute. Where else do you see something like that happening in the Bible? Can you think of anything? Yeah, I, just, I was saying um, when Jesus came to the cross, he knew, yeah. knew exactly yeah. what was... Well, I mean, um, uh, I'll get his name carried for a while. Mm -hmm. um, Simon of Simon, Cyrene. Mm -hmm. uh, Cyrene, but, 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 but Jesus knew exactly what that was. Yeah. It's actually very similar. That, that I would say so fits. That, that concept that the Son of God would carry his own death sentence to a place. In fact, that is what I think the writer of Samuel is bringing out here, but prophetically and looking down the corridor of time. Yeah. There's no story in the Bible that is wasted when you compare it with the, the life and ministry of Jesus. Every time you look at the stories that are in the Bible, if you analyse it in the light of who Jesus was, you always get a perspective. So I think Uriah being made to carry his own letter to his, to his death is like a little picture of Jesus having to carry his own cross up the hill. It's very good fits. I think, I mean we know that it's a very callous and deceitful thing, um, and we know that he's taken a risk with Uriah, uh, again, you see that lack of objectivity and, and planning. Not that, not that you'd want him to, to plan it better, because it's a horrible thing to have done, but can you see how, in sending the letter with Uriah, that runs a big risk. He's desperate, isn't he? He's, he's desperate, and also he's, he doesn't think straight. 
Not that you'd almost want him to think straight, but can you see how not thinking straight is characterising everything he's doing? No, 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 he didn't, he didn't take that risk on board. So this is laced with bad decisions against some pretty hefty risks that it would have gone wrong. Um, and you could argue that David exploits that trust that Uriah has towards him. You've got to ask yourself, I wonder how such a complex issue gets resolved in heaven. Because we have to assume that both David and Uriah are there now. Because um, Uriah never found out what happened to his wife or to him while he was alive. So I guess at some point in heaven there would have been some kind of weighing up of the scales and Exchange some kind some of punches. discussion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so because really Uriah goes to a de his death kind of an innocent man, doesn't he? Yeah. Not that we're all, any of us are innocent, but he goes to, the, to his death innocent of this scenario playing out. For, in his perspective, he was being totally obedient to David and he's just happens to get killed in the service of, his, of actually Israel, not his country, but, you know, of Israel. So, yeah, that's a strange scenario. And I guess God may, I guess he will, because he has to resolve that somehow in heaven. But I guess God will be, would have said to Uriah, well, okay, let's wait until David appears and then we'll resolve this. But you shouldn't be here. <laughs> so, yeah. So number eight, David is also dishonest with Joab about why Uriah should die. Um, I think, just sorry, I'm just pausing to reflect on how to couch this. I think that Joe, David knows that Joab would, would be obedient and... Um, he exploits that obedience in the same way that he exploits Uriah's trust. Um, and actually, that's really different to how David treats Saul. Um, and I think one of the things I've noticed is that all people, without exception, are capable of exceptional moral uh, righteousness in God. They are. But they're also capable of exceptional depravity and evil and slipping right away from God. And the scary thing about this story is that it's so, it happens so fast... And it goes so deep so quickly. Um, there's a minister down in uh, Kensington Temple who once said, um, uh, at my MIT interview actually, he said, it takes a lifetime to stand and a moment to fall. Uh, which is actually very true. Um, so David uses Joab to get Uriah killed, but he still covers up the real reasons to Joab, so Joab doesn't fully know. But then he uses Joab just as he uses Uriah and he uses Bathsheba and doesn't fully disclose uh, to, to, to him. Um, so number nine, uh, this is another point that you mustn't miss. Some of David's soldiers are killed, and needlessly so. So there are innocent bystanders uh, to David's uh, uh, palace cover-up far away who also lose their lives because they are needed to fight in this contingent alongside Uriah, which is all about making this thing look realistic. Um, so imagine if um, the instruction to Joab was put Uriah out by himself. That's never going to happen because they won't go out just on their own to try and tackle an enemy. They'll go out as a cohort uh, to, to that, because that's what you do. But that sending out of that cohort of men around Uriah cost some of those men their lives. So, and the point out of that is that sin causes innocent people to get hurt. It does. Um, 
And I think when you, when you step through this story, it gives you a window into why God gets so hacked off about sin and so angry about it. You know, sometimes you read in Romans like, okay, you know, God's wrathful at sin. And you kind of think, okay, I can understand that you're really angry, but I don't really get why you're so angry. When you see a story like this playing out in all of its horrible fullness, you get to understand why God gets so annoyed about it and so, so angry about it. And it might have even, we don't know this for sure, but it might have even possible that some of the other members of that 30 died on that day as well alongside Uriah. And then last, uh, but not least, number 10, David becomes desensitised to sin itself. So not only do you get to be more, not, not only do you become more naive when you're stuck in sin, not only do you lose your objectivity and your reason, and you start taking stupid risks and calculations that don't make any sense, you also start becoming desensitised to the nature of the sin. Now, how do I say that? Or why do I say that? Well, um, it, I think that he has become kind of dismissive and flippant in what he says uh, when he sends word to Joab in verse 25. He says, David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The, the sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. And so that's kind of shorthand for, oh well, anybody could have been killed. Um, and it's very interesting because the original Hebrew, I looked this up and it says, do not let this matter be evil in your eyes. Which kind of winds us back full loop to alternative facts, doesn't it? At the beginning. What the original Hebrew also says in verse 27 is, but the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of who? The eyes of the Lord. And there we get that moral stamp of, no, God is the person who decides what's right and wrong. And when we fall off that trail of righteousness and go off into sin, yeah. it is God who says, well, no, this is wrong. You've done the wrong thing. So there's this quite striking contrast between what David casually says to Joab and tries to minimise it and make it smaller and what God thinks of it all. Uh, and that's really kind of the whole point. There's no cover-ups with, with God. God sees everything. Sees everything. So, um, it's a pretty painful episode from start to finish. Uh, there's temptation, adultery, murder, cover-ups, deceitfulness, loss of innocent life, the hardening of the king's heart, and the king who had up to this point been someone after God, God's own heart. And it has far-reaching consequences that colour the rest of David's rule as king. And in a future weeks, we're going to unpack some of the things that happen as a result of that. Because I think that you can be forgiven for sin, and we'll look at how this works itself out next week, when, De when Nathan goes and confronts uh, David about this, and we'll look at Psalm 51 and so on. But I think, although you can be forgiven for sin, I think there are still some consequences to sin. And the two are different. So you can have, you can, you can have the slate wiped clean before God in relation to what you've done wrong, but I also think sometimes what you may have done has deep consequences that are now unalterable no matter how you wish that that wasn't the case. And we've got to take that on board. You know, sometimes we, on the one hand, we rightly are joyous that God can give us a fresh start and his mercies in you every morning. Absolutely. And his, you know, as far as the east is from the west, our sins are taken away from us. But if our sins involve somebody's now not got their life anymore, and they don't, you know, they don't go back to their families because they got killed on the battlefield because of some horrible plan then that's got a consequence for that family that runs on and on and on that isn't going to go away. And I think in some of the, some of the future sessions, we'll look at how that shadow sits over David's, the rest of David's reign. So, 
Um, time to just pause a moment. And uh, we've written down 10 pretty grisly things. And I'm just going to pause a minute. And just where you are, this isn't, because this is quite a, you know, quite a hard session in some ways. I'm not going to get you to talk to each other about these things. We're not going to do that. But what I'm going to ask you to do is just to close your eyes for a minute and listen to the Holy Spirit. And I want you to, and you can put these down in your notes there. Ask the Spirit to show you anything where you've tried to cover up something wrong. So the question, those two bullets there, ask the Spirit to show you anything where you've tried to cover up something wrong. Now don't write the thing that you've covered up down in that space, please. Preserve your confidentiality with God, that's fine. But ask the Spirit to do that. We'll just wait on the Spirit for a moment. Spirit is kind of suggesting some things to you. Maybe there's something that's a bit of a surprise that you thought, oh, did I cover that up? Maybe take a moment or two just to, to say sorry to God for that. just with your eyes closed still, just ask the Spirit now to guide you into all truth. To recalibrate you back into truthfulness and righteousness and objectivity and right relationship with God about that. So that activity that you're doing in your mind before God and with the help of the Holy Spirit right there if all decent godly leaders around the world did that I think the planet would be a whole lot better as a, as a place because we've, what you just did there was you got before God and you said no I want you to search me and know me and see if there's any offensive way in me and if I've been doing some covering up or any kind of thing that's not right would you show it to me and then give me that opportunity to, to say sorry and to put it right. Let's switch gears a minute and let's look at how we can kind of tackle this from the front end. So um, I think it's helpful for us to maybe have some strategies that will help us to get, uh, you know, get a kind of a march on this kind of scenario ever unfolding in the first place. So let's, let's do that. And, and what I've done in your notes there is I've got six application strategies for you to think about. Um, we need to manage ourselves around our moral tipping points, I think. This isn't the first one. I'm just kind of getting into it. Um, I think all sin starts with a tipping point. Now, what, what I mean by a tipping point is that it's that finely balanced knife-edged thing of shall I, shan't I. And sometimes that's incredibly fine. No, it's really, really finely calibrated, but really we still know, no matter how fine it is, whether it's right or wrong. But, but what we sometimes do is, because it's very finely balanced, we kid ourselves that it doesn't have an impact. Because we think, well, it's so finely balanced, no one's going to notice, it'll be fine. But don't kid yourself about that. 
all sin starts at the tipping point um, and can take us into the wrong space. So there are two, I'd say there are two tipping points for David, two primary ones in, in his journey, in this story. Uh, not being in the centre of God's will at the very beginning and out on the campaign field with his, uh, with, his, with his troops and also not being firm enough in that early temptation point. So the minute he saw Bathsheba uh, on the roof, he should have gone indoors, just turned his back on it, gone indoors and distracted himself with some other thoughts. That would have been great. Okay. Um, so let's have a look at some specific strategies and uh, let's get right, right into that now. Okay, number one. Pay particular attention to the time immediately after personal success. Pay particular attention to the time immediately after personal success. Something happens immediately before this story that I think is really worth pointing out. David has just won a massive battle against a a, a nation called the Arameans, and I think he's flushed with success. He is absolutely rocking it. He is on top of the world, he's absolutely came this, this group of people and defeated them spectacularly. Um, I'll just read you a little bit of what it says in uh, 2 Samuel 10, 17-19. So this is in the previous chapter. When David was told of this, he gathered all Israel, crossed the Jordan and went to Helam. The Arame- Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against him. But they fled before Israel and David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also uh, struck down uh, Shobak, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the kings who were vassals or slaves of Hadadezer saw that they had been routed by Israel, they made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. So the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites anymore. David scores a huge home run in this, in this victory, this military victory. Um, that's a massive victory by anyone's standards. And what I want to suggest is that a weak point for many of us often occurs right after a strong personal win. Um, so if I just draw this up on the board here, you, you'll, you'll get the graphic. I think quite visually, but you can have a big personal win, and then suddenly you're in this space here, and this is a real danger point here, just there. So this is like you just got a first at university, or you've just you know, sealed a deal at work, or you know, whatever it is, you've just done really, really well in something. Watch this space here like a hawk. Be very, very attentive to yourself in that space. Um, who's, a, who's a person in the, in the Bible who probably typifies that the most that you would say? Tell me, tell me some people that you think, wow, they really didn't, you know, they, they got caught out by that. Anyone? Can you give anybody? Peter, yeah. So what was Peter's one? Peter's one was, no, 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 I won't deny you, Lord. We're, we're, we're going we're gonna to do this. We, I've got you. We're, we're going to be together. Yeah, and then suddenly, poof. Was that the one you were thinking of or not? Uh, no? That one's a really yeah. good one, but before that, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. One of the best ones, yeah. You are the Christ, you are the Messiah. The Father's revealed this to yeah. you. Yeah, Just oh, no, that won't happen to you, Lord. And then yeah, and then get behind me, Satan. Yeah. <laughs> Moses. Yeah. Sorry? Moses. Where does that happen with Moses? Like, the, the victories, like he's had, and then the other time he did not, like, listen to God, like he didn't yeah. follow instructions because every time he followed instructions great things happen, yeah. and then the last one, yeah, so Moses has all of these successes and these great things that God supports him to do and then suddenly he tries to do it himself and just doesn't do, what, I mean Mark explored this in one of his sessions you know, earlier on in Moses' worst day which is a great session, but yeah he, he, he slips, 
Anyone else you can think of? Samson, yeah. So Samson gets filled with the Spirit of the Lord and then goes off the boil repeatedly. Um, another great one would be um, uh, uh, Elisha and the prophets of Baal. I mean, he has a great victory against the prophets of Baal. And then suddenly, like a day later, he's running for his life from Jezebel and trying to hide and wants to die. Yeah? So uh, strategy-wise, pay attention in your life to that real success point. Now, I'm not wanting you to, in the middle of your success point, that you've maybe completely deserved, deservedly gained in God, to suddenly be at yourself and taking that away. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is in the quiet space after the event, pay attention to yourself and watch that time. Um, okay. Uh, next one. Uh, keep on purpose, don't drift off it. Keep on purpose... Don't drift off it. Um, there's no doubt that David was a loose end. Was at a loose end. He was. He'd done this Aramean trip. He was now at a loose end, and he was back in Jerusalem, and it was all kind of quiet. So, what does that mean for you and I? It means that we've got to do some work on finding our purpose in God. What is it that God's calling us to do? And that may be a journey for many of us. Many of us are kind of working that through. Uh, trying to decide, well, what's God really asking me to do? Who is he making me to be as a character? But pursue that with everything you've got. Really go for it. Um, be passionate about your life and pursuing what God's will is for you in your life. Um, a really dangerous prayer I pray for myself sometimes quite regularly is, God, would you give me everything that you have for me? Now, I don't know what that might be or might that, what that might contain. And that's why it's a bit risky, because God might ask me to do something really outrageous that I would just really don't know how to do. But if it's God's will, then ultimately, in the long run, it's going to be good, right? So let's bring it on. Let's do that. God, would you, would you take me down the paths that you had in mind for me for, from before the beginning of the world? Whatever that looks like. So stay on purpose. Don't drift off of it. I think it's much easier to resist... The, the, the difficulties and the temptations of life when you've got a massive yes burning away at the centre of it. If you don't have a massive yes or a purpose or a mission burning away at the centre of who you are, I think other things step into the vacuum. Yeah, Sharon. Yeah, and, um, at the first verse, it says, when the kings go off to the Oh, totally. Yeah, he was off purpose in this in this situation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the fact that he was off purpose that made him like, mm -hmm. free to do whatever he wants. So yeah. when you're talking about purpose, yeah, mm -hmm. it's uh, just Yeah. I think in our character and in our organisations and in our society. The bias is towards naffness at the centre if you don't aggressively and strongly make it good. And that's true of your character, true of a church, true of a society, true of a city council, true of a job. If you don't actively be purposeful and energetic and buoyant and strong and filled with energy and direction, the opposite takes over, in my view, that it becomes just grotty and naff and, you know, does that make sense? Not using great language here. But yeah, I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to say, if you don't have that core purpose burning away at the centre, it's much, much harder to resist the difficulties that David gets into. Yeah. Isn't that what happened to Adam as well? In terms of, 
his purpose was to live in undistracted, continuous relationship with God, mm -hmm. to be God's worshipper, to to love on him, and actually it was when he lost sight of that purpose that he sinned as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was just... Yeah, I think that. Yeah, no, I think, no, that's right. And I think if you if you look, look at human humanity, the reason that we're created was to live in in deliberate, intentional relationship with God. And I think if Adam's mind had been completely on that, then yes, the he wouldn't have been drawn away. Yeah. A classic strategy of the enemy is to get you to focus on the one thing out of five million things that you can't do. Um, and actually, I mean, yeah, go on, Gary. Are you saying that the woman was the distraction? No, no, I'm saying, I'm saying the, I'm saying, sorry, that's a very important clarification, no, no, what I'm saying is that the enemy would, would distracted Adam and Eve from their purpose, which yeah. led them to sin. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> in, a, in a kind of weird, I'll come to you in a minute, Sharon, in a kind of weird way, the Garden of Eden story is about putting something of God first. And when we don't put something of God's first, everything else collapses, which is a very powerful argument for tithing. If you think about that there was one thing that they had to set apart for God, and they didn't do that, and then look what happened. I'm not badgering you all to sort out your tithing, but I am. Um, <laughs> tithing starts in the Garden of Eden with the, the, the bit that was God's that was first and segregated off to him. And when we try and take that away and make it our own, everything collapses as well. You know, it all goes wrong from there, really. Yeah. Sharon, you're going to say something, sorry. Pointing out, because we talk, we talk about leadership now. Um, they, are, uh, they, these, they were leaders and um, they had a job to do. And I'm just saying, when, we talk, when I'm looking at purpose, I'm thinking of, ultimately, what job does, had God given me to do or what job had yeah. God given King David to do. Mm -hmm. Now it says right at the very uh, uh, beginning, yeah. it was recognised what his job, his purpose, his yeah. responsibility yeah. Mm -hmm. was to do, that path that he was to take. Yeah. He made a decision, and it's our choices, he made a decision to go on to a different path, and that was to stay away from the path of God. And I know I'm kind of spiritualising it, but this is, it was his, his job. Yeah. His purpose was his job, yeah. and as leaders, as, as a leader, I would expect that, and then others would follow, but the path that he wrote, rooted out, yeah. brought something totally different he, to It him. did. Yeah. He stepped out of God's will for his life in that situation, and then things opened up to be wrong for him. It's very interesting, the wording in 1 Corinthians 10 <laughs> about temptation. It says, God will not let you be, be, be tempted beyond what you can bear. But that is contingent on you being in God's will. So imagine my, my space here is God's will. Well, if I'm there, God's not going to let me be tempted beyond what I can bear. If I step over here, right outside God's will, well, anything can happen now. I'm not kind of in God's will, and so that might be a whole lot harder to resist. It, there's a case to say that that is an underlying meaning in what's going on, and, and it bears out what you're saying. Definitely, we would expect... Your purpose might not be to go and you know, smash up the Arameans, it might be to do a great job where you are in, in Birmingham. That's fine. Each of us has a specific purpose, but we must do that. And we must be centred on that. Yeah, Martha. Could it have been that David, he, he reached the top, so 
So he's doing well, and then all of a sudden he thought, oh, I've done what I could do. I'm, I'm the Batman here. Yeah. So he kind of he was too idle and to, mm. thought, oh, what do I do next? Can yeah, I, I think there's definitely that uh, syndrome going on. There's a, there's, what you say has, made, has reminded me that in some environments, exactly that happens. It's, I think it, it's got a name, and I'm sorry, I can't remember what it is, but it's, it's to do with when you've got very, very successful and suddenly loads of uh, accolades and awareness and all the rest of it come your way and you forget to do the things that made you successful. You stop doing them and it all plummets down, downhill. So, sorry? Yeah, complacency, absolutely. So, like, you get, let's say you're a very, very good sportsman and you get to be the top of your game and then suddenly it's like press deals and, you know, on Twitter all day and all these kinds of things and you forget to do all the things that put you there in the first place and suddenly it crashes. And there's a name for it, and I can't remember what the name is, but I was literally reading about that today in relation to, to this. So, yeah, you can get very, very successful and suddenly you do, you almost get like a kind of, yeah, like a complacency and it starts becoming, you know, not so good. Yeah, Michael? Um, I don't know whether this is um, 100% applicable to this, but in Proverbs it says pride comes before a fall. And possibly when you're getting to the peak of that thing, mm -hmm. a little bit of pride creeps in. Oh, definitely. It's a great observation, Michael. You're absolutely right. At this point here, this is where we're most tempted to believe our own hype. Mm -hmm. Oh, look, I'm at the top of the mountain. I've done so well. Look at me. And that's, again, that's, we're, we're starting to lose objectivity about ourselves even there. We're just human like we've always been. Um, yeah, so I think, in fact, I think pride goes before a fall comes like in some of my notes in a minute. So you're right on the money there. That's absolutely right. Um, let's go on to number three. Sorry. Are we good? Yeah? yeah? Next one. Be sharp and on your toes about what you find tempting and keep paying attention to that for your whole life. I'm just going to say it straight, okay? I actually think temptation works like a very persistent door-to-door -door salesman or one of these companies that calls you all the time for PPI. What they do is they just keep coming back to see if you've changed your mind. It says when, when Jesus was tempted in the desert, it says in Luke's gospel that Satan left him and then was going to come back and see if he could get another opportune time to get at Jesus. I actually think we probably have three or four major areas in our life where the devil exploits us and works our weakness, and he keeps coming back on those over and over and over and over again. It's just boringly predictable. It's like a dripping tap, but it's powerful and it can catch you out. So be on your toes about what you find tempting and keep paying attention to that uh, all the time. So you need to know yourself. You need to know what you struggle with and what you need to be on guard against for the rest of your days, your mortal days. I do think the battle against temptation can become easier and you do become more used to not letting yourself slip. Um, but I also think as your maturity rises and perhaps some of your ministry influence rises or you become more settled and so on, I think the, the devil ups the ante, makes it more difficult, offers you more temptations, offers you new angles on temptations that you hadn't thought of before. So I think... I'd like to say we get better and better at it as we go through life. You know that line of like getting more and more consistent and, and better and more and more Christ-like. But at the same time as that, if we go back to that diagram in your notes, the evil desires also climb. They become more insidious, perhaps. So, yeah, Gabby. Um, you say God doesn't tempt anybody. No. Okay. Oh, the Bible says that. But then how can you differentiate 
this is temptation and this is a test. Like this is a test because we know God mm -hmm. will test you. Okay, it's a good question. How can you differentiate between temptation and test? I think it's the trajectory of where it's going. So in other words, um, a temptation is trying to pull you into unrighteousness. A test is trying to refine your character so that there's more righteousness possible afterwards. Do you get, do you get the difference? But then if you don't pass the test, you still fall into sin. No, not necessarily. I think you, if you may not... Let's say, let's say the test is persistence. Like, you need to just work hard in your job, you know, and to get to a certain level. But you keep... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Gal yeah, Galby. Yeah. But, <laughs> but let, ignore that. But, um, but let's, say, let's say that you, for, for whatever reason you haven't developed that character, you know, that uh, characteristic of, in, of persistence enough, God leaves that test open until your persistence is developed enough for you to get through... To the next level, so a great test of the of the morality of something, if you like, or whether it's a temptation or a test, is ask yourself where did this come from and where is it going to. Sometimes in isolation you can't work that out, but if you say the roots of this are not in a great place, and you know what, it's definitely not taking me in a great place either. Chances are it's temptation, particularly if it's trying to get you to do the wrong thing, and you know that. If it's a test, it's much more about. God is doing something in your character that you're finding hard, but it's going to bear fruit in the long run. Yeah? Uh, I once heard it described as it was, it was the art uh, of knowing the difference between a temptation and a trial uh, and about how we need endurance for the trial and resistance for the temptation. Very good. And we need to make sure that we're not resisting a trial or enduring a temptation. It needs to be yeah, that we are very good. Yeah. resisting a temptation and enduring a trial because uh, trials are, if we endure them, they are life-giving. Mm -hmm. um, but temptations will only ever bring death. Yeah. And, and we're, we are to resist them um, rather than try to endure them. Yeah. So, you know, actually, if it's the kind of thing that requires, what we need to get through is, is strength and... I just need to continue to trust God through this, then it's probably a, a trial. But if it's, if it's something that is intrusive and, and death-bringing, then, then mm -hmm. God, doesn't, God isn't going to grow our character by, by keeping us there. He's going to grow our character by giving us the strength to remove ourselves from it. Very so good. It's the resistance endurance thing. Very good. Because yeah. yeah, sometimes when we're in the dark, it's because we've put ourselves in a mess. Yeah. Sometimes it's, we're in the dark because God's planted us below the surface. He's waiting for us to grow. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, I have to credit that to a tweet I saw this week. That wasn't really <laughs> I just liked it. I thought, oh, that's great. I love that. I'm using that for several years. So, okay. And one of the things is that sometimes temptation feels good and test feels hard. So don't judge it just by feeling. Uh, temptation can feel enticing, but it's taking you somewhere outside of the process. So sometimes we think, oh, temptation is hard and test is hard. Well, actually, sometimes test doesn't feel good. It feels like, oh, I've got to sort this out. So don't judge it just by feelings. What Pastor Nick said is, where is it taking you and where has it come from? Um, so number four of the six. Um, pray... Romans 6, verse 6 over your weak spots. Would someone just quickly look that up, please, and read it out? Romans, Romans 6, verse 6. 
For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. What, did, what Jesus did on the cross means that the position you have spiritually is that you are no longer a slave to sin. You're not a slave to sin. You don't have to do the wrong thing. You're not obliged to. You're actually free. Uh, and Jesus has given us that freedom because of what he did on the cross. So a great thing to do is to pray that verse from Romans over the specific issues or areas that you routinely struggle with. Ask God to bring freedom in those areas and speak that verse and that life and that truth and that word over those things. Um, it's really significant to me that Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. Uh, and, in, and as we've looked at tonight, temptation is a journey of a series of steps down a path that really it's best to avoid at the very beginning of the path. Temptation, I would also suggest, is, is often us trying to meet legitimate need, needs that we've got, but the wrong way. So um, Satan tried to present uh, answers to Jesus' wishes in ministry, but did them the wrong way. So it's like, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the nations of the world. Well, Jesus' heart in his ministry would be to win everybody to the kingdom of heaven. But devil, the devil's trying to get it to be done the wrong way. And also it's often, in, often seems to involve a shorter time scale too. But we can meet that need quicker if we do it the wrong way. So at the root of, a, well, nearly all, I'd say all temptations, there are legitimate needs there. But it's God that's best placed to meet those needs and, it, and his time and his way. And we, we think, oh no, that's not right, God, you're not completely good. We, we, we can meet this our own way. That's, that's temptation, okay? So pray Romans 6, 6 over your weak spots. Uh, oops. Um, pay particular attention to learning memory verses that deal with your temptation head on. Um, and this is where it, you've just got no substitute for getting in the Word every day because if you get in the Word every day, you're going to find these little nuggets that will feed you in your times of temptation. Um, so learn some memory verses that deal with your uh, your issues. Um, so for example, I'll just pick one as an example. If you're somebody that is tempted to get really anxious a lot, and you're, you wrestle with anxiety, you know it's a weak spot for you, it trips you up, it causes you to be pretty difficult around people. Let's say that's your, your thing. Why don't you learn Psalm 91 verses 1 to 2 that says, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Now if you learn that and speak that out into the atmosphere every time you're having these panic attacks or anxiety issues or you know, you're just kind of mistrusting people because you're so anxious about a situation, if you speak these life-giving words from that psalm over that situation, it kind of nullifies it, it knocks it out. Um, and so really do some work on finding some memory verses for your areas and, and, and speak them out. So find them, learn them, and speak them out. Okay? And then the last one, um, pay particular attention to maintaining those costly but healthy accountability relationships. So last of all, uh, these six strategies are all about avoiding what David did uh, up front. So the last one is, uh, let's have some accountability relationships. And that needs to be someone where you've got the level of honesty and also the level of trust with them that you can say to them, do you know what, I actually find this tempting. I actually find watching soaps on the TV for six hours straight at the weekend on catch-up. I find that tempting. And then your mate will say to you, ah, 
come on, it's not so bad. You've told me now, let's pray about it. And then you feel suddenly loads better because it's out in the open and um, it's much, much better. The, the minute you confess the thing that you find tempting, I have found that it disappears right down to back to a proper perspective in God again. When I've taken that courageous step of doing that, um, I'm, I've got an accountability partnership with another guy called Nick. He's a minister over in Norfolk. And we get on the phone to each other. We sometimes meet. We sometimes uh, talk on Skype. And we just say, okay, here's some things I've struggled with. And he just kind of laughs. And then he tells me his thing. And I'm like, really? You know, and we just have this kind of level kind of, okay, let's just bring this back down to reality and not let it blow up into something uh, completely out of proportion. Got just a couple of minutes left. I just want to give you a quick demonstration about how temptation works. So temptation is like a spiritual aneurysm. Do you know what an aneurysm is? It's when your arteries blow up into something really huge, okay? So I've blown this uh, issue up in my head. Like it's got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, okay? And if I walk around with this in my head all the time, all it's going to do is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, you need to find someone that you can go and let this out to, okay? So I want to just say, listen, I'm just chatting with Chloe about this issue. And Chloe, I'll say to Chloe, listen, Chloe, I'm really sorry, but I, I, I find this a bit tempting, okay? And she does exactly what your accountability partner will do, which is laugh at you. But also with you. But guess what? Okay, you don't have this creating a massive strain in your mental landscape anymore. It's gone back down to where it should be as a useless, floppy little side issue that you don't need to worry about. And you might be, have had a, had a laugh about it. Um, you know, and actually, our accountability people, when we've got to that level of trust, and it takes work and effort they don't actually mind that we do that to them, okay? So I would much prefer we did a spiritual raspberry to one of our close friends and dealt with the issue and got it back to that. <laughs> Perfectly timed. Um, rather than having this massive, massive thing that we're carrying around because we're not dealing with it. Is that good? Yeah? All right. So... Um, I'm going to pray over you, and then, yeah, do you, want to, do you want to come and sing? Let's sing that song again, that's a good idea. I'm just going to pray over you, and then uh, we'll wrap up, because it's nine o'clock.